0: Church, as Todd mentioned um, in his prayer, we are are nearing uh, the mark in which we're intending to uh, have the beginning of a a um, three-phased re-engagement of the public ministries of the church. So, on behalf of the elders, I wanted to take uh, a moment, just a few minutes here, before we jump into um, our passage this morning, to, to give you a little bit of the rationale uh, behind that, and I uh, hope that this will be um, an encouragement to you. Um, but before that, we need to say to all the graduates, there's so many graduates this week. One of them is here in the room, Caleb Skinner. Congratulations, Caleb. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, happy graduation to you, brother, and to all the other graduates. Now. Um, You'll notice there might be another balloon in the camera. If you see it, feel free to comment in the comment section, any thoughts you have about that balloon. But you can't be horsing around once the sermon starts, all right? Only during the announcements. Um, So I want to take a minute uh, and just give you a little bit of information, brothers and sisters, about uh, sort of our thinking as your pastors behind how we're choosing to approach uh, the re-engagement of the public ministries of the church. Uh, we talked about this in the members meeting last Sunday night. There were so many of you there. What an encouragement that was as we spent the evening together. Thank you for uh, spending those two hours on uh, Zoom. Uh, for some of you, this will be the first time that you're, you're hearing some of this information. Um, if we could throw up that first slide that has uh, the uh, images that will give us a sense of the numbers in terms of what we're thinking about in the uh, the phased reopening. So we're thinking, uh, church, that at this point, we're sort of planning on a a three-phased approach to resuming the public ministries of the church. You'll see there on your screen um, the the worship gatherings. So here in the auditorium, in person, uh, we would begin with uh, a maximum of 50 people. And uh, Lord willing, we'll have three of those, so that would begin in two weeks, and uh, at least one, perhaps more of those, will be continue to be virtually offered for people who uh, cannot come, and there'll certainly be some that it would be uh, wise, given uh, proclivities, being uh, at risk, uh, vulnerable, those kinds of situations would be better to stay home. Um, And then from phase uh, one, we'll move into two, that number would bump up to 100, and then into phase three, there would be uh, no limit. So why? Um, Well, let me take a minute to read a a scripture that might be instructive and helpful to us. This is uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we jump here in the middle of a paragraph but in a way I think that's going to be insightful to us as we consider our own circumstances. It says this, Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Church, uh, this is an unusual circumstance in which we really have to ask carefully. Uh, How do we seek in this circumstance to do good to one another and to everyone? That's really the question that we've been trying to wrestle with as we've considered how to approach the re-engagement of the public life of the church. You see, on the one hand, there's the desire as brothers and sisters we all have to get back together. The The weekly starting our week together here in the auditorium, worshiping our great God is the rhythm that sets our entire week forward. It's the place we really mark ourselves out as a sign of the glory of God and the people of God by assembling under the word of God. And so we, of course, long for that, long to do that again. And yet... We also know that very clearly uh, gathering in groups is at present a risk. It's a risky thing to do. And so how do we seek to do good to one another by gathering and do good to all people by being aware of the fact that uh, the more people you have in a room, the greater the possibility that one of us unknowingly, of course, might have the virus and spread it to others. Well, as we've prayerfully thought through that, it it seems uh, to us as your pastors that the most loving thing to do would be to try to think about how do we be most wise, how do we be a good witness, how do we obey the scriptures to get together, and how do we give liberty of conscience and freedom to those of us as brothers and sisters who might not yet feel comfortable and safe uh, leaving our homes. Well, as we try to m- mitigate all those factors, and admittedly, uh, we'll know more in a month than we do today. And We'll certainly know way more in six months than we do today. And none of us have ever done this before. But through prayer, our hope is that a, a three-phased re-engagement that's really patterned after the CDC guidelines would give opportunity for each of us to exercise wisdom and caution and do good to all and to everyone. A practical example of that will be, uh, as we assemble in two weeks, we'll be uh, handing out uh, masks to those who don't bring one. We'll be asking you, please, if you would wear them. The reason for that would give a great practical example of the scripture I just read. You see, Unless you have one of those uh, fancy N95 masks, then you're not really wearing a mask for principally self-protection. You're you're wearing the mask because you might have the virus, and especially in, in singing, you could unknowingly be spreading it to others. So how do we do good to one another and to everyone? Well, a very practical way is that we can consider each of us personally can consider if we're able to come that we choose one of those gatherings and we come and we mask up and then we sing to the glory of God it might be uh brothers and sisters that for some of you you'll decide to stay at home and that's totally fine we've we intend to feel no pressure to feel uh, under no constraint that in these unusual days, there are some, in fact, who are providentially hindered. In phase one, you'll see here on another slide uh, that uh, there are some details there. Would encourage you to look in your inbox where you can find uh, more information about this. And additionally, there's a survey that will give us some sense about which gathering people will be coming to. Lots more details here to talk about. We'll be putting out more material in the coming days, and in fact, weeks. Uh, We'll be trying to help parents as you consider the implications of this for your precious little kids. And uh, church, we just love you and are grateful uh, for your kindness and patience to us as your leaders um, in this time. Let's now uh, turn to the scriptures. If you would, please open with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts uh, chapter 8. And no more commenting about the balloons. Now we're gonna get down to business, all right? However, if you're on Zoom and uh, you have a question that might come up uh, during the sermon, then I wanna encourage you to hover down at the bottom of your screen, click that uh, Q&A button, Submit any, any questions that you might have about the passage that we're walking through or, or any comment that I would make in the sermon. And uh, then we will have a special guest hosting us in the Q and A uh, later after uh, the sermon and benediction. Uh, during the spring of 2019, we spent our Sunday mornings journeying through the book of 1 Samuel in our worship gatherings. Who would have ever imagined the next year that we'd be doing gatherings like this. If you weren't with us uh, back then, you'll be able to jump on the church's website or any podcast service that you might use and find those sermons, if you're interested, in the book of 1 Samuel. But for those of you who were here, would you recall one of the great themes of the book? Namely, that God is the God of shocking reversals. Think back to some of the characters from the story in 1 Samuel. The the infertile, ostracized Hannah became the mother of Samuel, and she went on to pray one of the most beautiful prayers in the entire Bible. Samuel, who, who was a nobody, Samuel became the faithful mouthpiece of God when there was such a severe crisis among the leaders in Israel. Later, the the mighty King Saul was brought low, while the lowly David, shepherd boy, was raised up. Those are merely a few examples demonstrating in the book of 1 Samuel the fact that God specializes in the unexpected. Beloved, if we look closely at our own lives, and indeed at our shared life together as a church, We're sure to find ample evidence in our own experience that God commonly upends the norms of the world in order to display the glory of heaven. You see, in the kingdom of God, there's power in weakness, there's strength in suffering, there's victory in death, there's exaltation in humiliation. God is indeed the God of shocking reversals. Now, as we make our way into this next passage in the book of Acts, we're, we're really moving into a new era in the book, a new section, a new phase. And we'll want to have that idea, that truth that God is a God of shocking reversals in the forefront of our minds. We'll be starting in verse 4 in just a moment. Now, if you're new to the Bible, then it might help you to know that Acts records events spanning three decades. These events began in the city of Jerusalem and then gradually spread out geographically outward across the first century Roman Empire. Acts is a book about the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. I encourage you, if you've never read it, that you would take the time to just maybe take a chapter a day and begin today reading through this great book. You'll learn so much about God and where the church came from. Now, beloved brothers and sisters, remember that back in Acts 7, Stephen was murdered for his faith in Jesus. And then, as we saw last week at the start of chapter 8, terrible persecution broke out against this young church. Jewish leaders, including someone named Saul, ravaged the church, literally dragging Christians from their home, throwing them in prison, doing everything they could to rip this young church apart, limb from limb. Now, so significant was this persecution. The very survival of this new movement under the name of Jesus seemed to be at stake. But while there was terror, in Jerusalem. There was great joy in Samaria. How did that happen? Danny Naylor is going to read for us verses 4 through 13. And as she reads, again, listen for the steady and sure truth that God is a God of shocking reversals. Danny?
1: Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria and seeing signs and great miracles performed,
0: he was amazed. Thank you, Danny. I'm amazed that with four kids you didn't have any of them in the screen. <laughs> that was miraculous. Now, church, did you catch it? Did you see it? The 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 joy in Samaria. The the miracle of people coming to know Jesus and being included in his kingdom, the the spread of the church into Samaria, the very power of God on display among an ostracized people. All of these things were occasioned by the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. What looked on the surface like it might ruin the church of Jesus Christ before it really got up and going, turned out to be the very thing that scattered gospel seed and bore gospel fruit in new places. Persecution beget joy. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, we can't spend long here. There's far too many things to talk about in this passage, but brothers and sisters, I want to urge you to hear that simple truth loud and clear and to sit down in it with confidence. God is the God of shocking reversals. We mustn't pretend today to know precisely what our sovereign Lord is doing in this COVID-19 pandemic and all its attendant global suffering. But we need not fear. We Christians are, are people of good cheer and courage, for God will build his church and the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, will tend to his sheep, keeping all of us spiritually safe. He will hold us fast. Are these difficult days? Yes, of course. Do we yet see all that God is doing? Well, no. But rest assured, this Crisis will lead to the furtherance of the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. It will build us up in the Lord. It will even, in ways that will shock us in the future, it will bring about the growth of the global church. You see, church, God's got us. Christian, Jesus has you. Trust him. God upends what we would expect in order to do what only he can do. As you look at verse 4, it's beautiful to see the fact that the gospel moving outward from the city of Jerusalem was not accomplished by the apostles, but rather regular people. These were non-religious professionals. Who, as they fled persecution, shared Jesus Christ. One of those people was a man named Philip. Now, this is the same Philip that back in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we found him being appointed as a servant set aside to care for the widows of the church in Jerusalem. But by Acts chapter 8, he's been forced to flee the city of Jerusalem, leaving his post as perhaps one of the earliest deacon-like leaders in the city of Jerusalem. And as he went, he went with the good news of Jesus Christ. He went as a gospel sharer. He shared the word of God. Notice in your Bibles that in verse 5, he simply proclaimed The Christ. Friends, that's shorthand for the most important message we will ever share. That message is that Jesus is our only hope in life and death, that He's the Messiah, that salvation is found in Him and in Him alone, that Jesus died to take the punishment of our sin and rose again, that we have new life. And He returned, he, He turned to heaven where he today rules and reigns and will one day come again. All spiritual truth is bound up in this Messiah and all lasting joy is available in him. All of that and so much more is captured in those two words, the Christ. Philip preached the Christ. Brothers and sisters, surely 99.9% of all Christians, are not pastors. They're not scholars. They're not religious professionals. People like me are not the folks who do the primary spreading of the word of God. No, you are. That's what this story shows us. The main agents to make Christ known are people like you, So, church, we ought to be prayerful and attentive in everyday life because God's given us his spirit and his plan is to speak through us as we go that we might share Christ with a world in such desperate need of life and joy in Jesus. Now, in addition to the the shocking reversal that this persecution led to joy, there's another unexpected twist in these verses. In fact, while it's not readily obvious to us probably, it would have been the far, far, far more scandalous, stunning reversal to us if we were alive in the first century. In a church like Church on Mill, with the incalculable benefit of the full counsel of God's word and the unified witness of 2,000 years of church history, There are certain truths that we hold as Christians to be self-evident today. But these truths would have been unthinkable before God made them plain in history and recorded them in scripture. And these verses that Danny read display one of these truths. It's, It's another upheaval, it's another reversal, it's another shock. And it's all over this passage. But if we're not careful, we'll just breeze right past it. Here it is. Samaritans. Samaritans who believe the gospel are included in the new people of God. Philip went to a city in Samaria. And the Samaritans paid attention. They listened as he preached Christ. The word of God did the work of God and it was powerful enough to save even the Samaritans. Now, we today know, and it is a foregone conclusion for us, that any ethnic group, any people of any color who believe in Jesus Christ get God, amen? But Acts records so many details about this breaking forth of the gospel into Samaria that It's clear this was a stunning development at the time. So give me a moment to to explain. And I, I promise this is very much connected to our own present experience today. By the first century, so in the time in which these events were unfolding, the hostility between the Jews on the one hand and the Samaritans on the other had already lasted a thousand years. Now there are many layers to this conflict between these two groups, but the most substantial issue is that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the events of Acts chapter eight, the Jews who lived in Samaria gradually intermarried with Gentiles. And this brought about a, a synchronization of their faith with pagan practices. The circumstances are complicated, but over time, the Jews began to see the Samaritans as half-breeds, as ethnic and religious hybrids beyond hope, as unclean defectors to be despised. And this chasm between Jew and Samaritan seemed so deep and wide that nothing, nothing would ever bring them together. The Jews quite literally hated the Samaritans. One of the things you would pray if you were a good, pious Jew is that you're thankful that God didn't make you a Samaritan. Now, in response to all this, an oppressed people develop coping mechanisms. They find ways to survive. And that's what happened with the Samaritans. The Samaritans developed their own rival Bible. They they cut out... All the books of the Old Testament except Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They built their own temple, since they weren't allowed to go to the temple in Jerusalem. They expected their own Messiah. Now, by the time of Jesus, no good moral Jew would have anything to do with a Samaritan. If you were going to mock someone, a fellow Jew, for something horrendous, then you'd call him a Samaritan. But Philip, Philip went there. He went among them. He shared Christ in Samaria and God saved many Samaritans. It's not incidental that the first people we have record of responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ outside the city of Jerusalem were despised. Samaritans. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to save anyone. God's forgiveness is that grand. God's love is that great. Ultimately, what this shows us, of course, is that Jesus is the king for all peoples. The new covenant people of God are the people that God has for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Anyone who responds to the good news about the kingdom of God and the truth about Jesus Christ, anyone who turns from sin and turns to Jesus, any and every believer gets fully locked in and included among the people of God. You see, it's union with Christ, not ethnic heritage, that brings one and keeps one in the kingdom of God. Friend, if you're hearing this message this morning, or perhaps watching it far after, long after we gathered virtually right now, and you're not a Christian, then won't you lay hold of what this means? However sketchy your past, whatever color your skin, Whomever you know, however much you have, wherever you are on the scale of religion to irreligion, Trump lover, Trump hater, mask wearer, mask denier, gay or straight, virgin or prostitute, filthy rich or dirt poor, Jesus is enough to make you right with God. And his gospel is the gospel for all peoples. You are not too far gone. No one is. The Word of God is powerful enough to bring salvation to you. The salvation and inclusion of believing Samaritans is all the corroboration you need to know that God is able and willing to forgive you. Won't you repent and believe? Now, so powerful was this gospel advance into the city of Samaria that people turned from the counterfeit demonic magic of Simon to the preached word of Philip. The way this text is recorded is designed to show us the contrast between the the fake, phony, counterfeit, demonic work being done by Simon and the genuine God-exalting god exalting Holy Spirit-infused gospel word of Philip. Simon was apparently a great guy in terms of the volume of people who knew him and followed him. He had a lot of Twitter and Instagram followers, apparently. This man even called himself great. You'll notice in your scriptures that that G is capital in verse 10. What that's telling us is that Simon claimed some sort of divinity for himself. But the news about Jesus and the sign of his rule and reign were nothing. They were nothing. But they were <laughs> so much more powerful than what Simon did. Simon's. Power, in other words, was little while God's power is great. Even Simon claimed to believe. But as we'll find in the following verses, we'll read together in just a moment. Verses 14 to 24 will show that Simon isn't a real convert. Simon sought to use God for his own sinful self-interests. He thought he could buy the power of God. And ever since this passage was recorded, simony has been a term used to describe the terrible thought that one can buy your way into right standing or into political or religious power with money. Friends, the gospel word is sufficient to save all who truly believe but only those who truly believe will be made right with God. You see, the the same message that saves the repentant will at the same time expose the wickedness of those who who refuse to turn to Jesus, even if it appears on the outside like they have. While there's much more to be said about Simon, and I'd encourage you to, to read through this passage in the coming week and Talk it through with some other friends as you consider its significance. We do need to move on and end this morning by carefully considering the main idea in verses 14 to 25. Before I read them, let me ask you to consider a a hypothetical. If, If the Jews and Samaritans were accustomed to such a tremendous divide between them, then wouldn't it seem natural, even expected, that the Jewish Christians would form a a Jewish church and the Samaritan Christians would form a Samaritan church? Church based on people like them, people of the same ethnic background, folks with the same pasts, people who, who look like and thought like each other, And couldn't there be a case made, if that hypothetical were true, that there are even different classes of Christians? I mean, the Jews, of course, would be first, while the Samaritans would be second. The the outbreak of the gospel into Samaria posed a perilous moment for the church. Would there be one true church of the Lord Jesus Christ or would the normal divisions of life carry forward even after people had believed in the Lord Jesus? Well, verses 14 to 17 give us the answer. This text reveals that there is only one true Church of Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you would, at your Bibles or on the screens at verse 14. It says, "Now." When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now jump down to verse 25 for the summary. Now, when they, that's the apostles, when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Beloved, when the news of the gospel being reached and received among the Samaritans made its way all the way back to the church in Jerusalem, remember the apostles had stayed there, then those Apostles sent two of their number, a delegation, if you will, Peter and John, to check things out. And when they arrived, they found Samaritans who had, in fact, believed the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They found Samaritans whom God saved. And yet they found Samaritans who were not yet indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, Those of you with some theological chops are asking right now, how is that possible? I didn't think that's how things work. Does that happen today? Chuck, has the quarantine rotted your theology? These are the kinds of things you're wondering. Think carefully with me through this. Verse 14 indicates that the Samaritans genuinely believed in the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends what that means is that somehow God's in his spirit had awakened them to see the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ and to turn from sin and turn to him. But just two verses later in verse 16 we see those same Samaritans had not yet received the Holy Spirit. whose presence within is the sign and seal of salvation. And it's only in verse 17 that they're saved and filled with the Spirit. And so this raises a very important question, a question that unfortunately has divided many, many churches. Why this odd two-stage process in the redemption of the Samaritan believers? I imagine when each of you woke up this morning, that was the first question you pondered before your coffee. Why this odd two-stage process in the redemption of the Samaritan believers? I recognize that the non-Bible nerds are wondering what in the world. I don't know why this matters at all. Give me a couple more minutes and I'll show you. Thinking, Thinking back to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Do you remember what happened? There was a group of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were Jews who, by any stretch of the imagination, already believed in Jesus. They'd already trusted Christ and turned from their sin. But it was only on the day of Pentecost that they were indwelled by the Spirit. The Spirit came on them in a visible, demonstrative permanent way. This was an enormous change in the history of redemption. The breaking forth of the new covenant people of God was marked that day by the obvious indwelling of God's presence within every believer. The glory of God was not bound to the temple and curtained off from people any longer. No, the glory of God, the, the spirit was indwelling Within Now, that's what happened in Acts 2 among the Jews and then moved forward as Peter preached his sermon and the Spirit saved and indwelled so many in the city of Jerusalem. But as that declaration that Jesus is king for all people breaks out in Acts beyond Jerusalem into Samaria everyone would have been asking, are the believing Samaritans really included in the people of God? I mean, maybe they can have their shack, tiny little church, but we really, we Jews, we are the ones who belong. We're the ones that are all the way in. Well, God chose, friends, to answer this question by waiting to give the Samaritans the Holy Spirit, until the apostles came. This unusual, atypical, irregular two-stage process actually happens several times in the book of Acts. It happens every time the gospel goes out to a new people group. This is the pattern. In each occasion, a public demonstration of the Spirit coming to indwell believers occurs as each new ethnic group comes to trust Christ. It it served to shout it from a mountaintop that all believers are fully included in the people of God, regardless of their ethnic identity. The point here isn't the apostles or the laying on of hands. This is not the so-called second blessing of the Spirit. This is the the one time among Samaria that as people believed, then the Spirit came in a specific moment different from the moment of conversion to serve as a sign of salvation in God's presence within and their full inclusion in the people of God. So here's the, the reason all this matters. Friends, all Christians are equal in the kingdom of God. There is only one true church. Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 12 make clear that all who are saved already have the spirit, that that those two things, faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the spirit happen at the same time. This two-stage process in Acts chapter 8 was only for the infancy of the church. First among the Jews, then among the Samaritans, then among the Gentiles. You see, Jesus is the king for all people. All who are indwelled by the Spirit make up one true church. Beloved, I think it's the kindness of God that brings us to this text today. And it is most remarkable to me that he would do so. I think that churches around the world, and especially churches here in the United States, stand on the cusp of a very real threat to our unity in Christ. Will the gospel of Jesus Christ and his presence within us by means of the Holy Spirit continue to be what unites us and binds us together as a church? Or will our views on how to respond to the pandemic Divide us. Will the, the reopen, have faith, trust God, this is all overblown, and the cautious stay home, it's too, it's too serious to get out crowd, split in two? Will there be schisms that harm our relationships, that pervert real Christian love, that mar our witness, as one unified people of God. Will we divide? Maybe. I sure hope not, though. You see, we have the Spirit. We've all been included on equal ground as brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of that, there's plenty of room for disagreement on the global crisis we face. What matters most is what these verses make plain. Jesus is the king for all peoples and it's by his indwelling spirit that there is one church. A church of equals. A church not divided. So whether you get your news on Fox or you get your news on CNN, whether you're for how President Trump has handled this or against, whether you intend in two weeks to stay home and participate virtually or come here and worship in person. May we be so careful, careful that there not be a church for Samaritans, and a church for Jews. There is only one church. How do we know? Because we have the Spirit. And may this Holy Spirit enable us to turn from personal preference and very strong opinions to love one another deeply from the heart. By relying on the Spirit, may we be careful May we strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We ask you to come to our aid in this way. That we would be living out of the resurrected power of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit within that we would not split into factions over real and important distinctions and opinions and preferences, but certainly not primary ones. We pray that we would be laying down our lives for one another, even as Christ laid down his life for us. We love you. We thank you that in your wisdom, You brought the Spirit in these unusual phased ways within the book of Acts in order to help us know once for all time that all people who come to Christ are fully included in the kingdom of God. And it's in the kingdom, it's in the name of Jesus, in the church, the body of Christ, that we learn so much of your love for us. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that you have gathered us up, as the book of John teaches us, even into Trinity-level oneness. May we see this as precious and on our knees prayerfully fight to maintain it by laying down our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.